Well, this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, lots of churches will focus on the continuing struggle for justice in our society and in our world. But sadly, there are a number of churches that will not put their focus there. Now, by God's incredible grace, we aren't numbered among the latter. Because of God's grace, most of us see the injustices, see the need of the struggle, and want to be a part of the solution. But how many of you know good intentions don't always translate into effective engagement? You can have great intentions and fail to make a difference. Social media offers us ample proof of that fact. Effective engagement requires an accurate understanding of the problem, one that will shape an appropriate response to the problem. And in this case, in the case of the need of greater justice in our nation, effective engagement requires a recognition of the struggle that lies behind the struggle that we can see. Now, the struggle that lies behind the struggle we see is one that the world refuses to acknowledge for two reasons. First of all, they are incapable of seeing it because only those who have been given understanding by God can see it. But secondly, if they were to acknowledge the struggle behind the struggle, they would be indicting their own belief, or their own unbelief, excuse me. Now, Jesus' followers should be the ones who see the struggle behind the struggle. Because as I said a moment ago, God has opened our understanding to what is happening in the spirit realm. He's opened our understanding to look beyond mere human politics and so on and to see principalities and powers and spiritual forces of darkness. So we're capable of discerning the struggle behind the struggle. But here's the problem. Sometimes we allow ourselves to get distracted and to get compromised by the shrill, persistent, strident voices and endless accusations of a culture that cannot see the real nature of the struggle and doesn't particularly want to see the real nature of the struggle. And when we allow them to influence us, we allow their blindness to distort our vision and to short-circuit our efforts and sometimes to even set our agenda. Then we end up attempting to produce something in Jesus' name, but attempting to do so without Jesus' power. And then our efforts prove inadequate at best and counterproductive at worst. So today, when we're focusing as a nation on justice, I want to focus the church on the struggle behind the struggle the large piece of the iceberg that the world just doesn't discern. Before we embark on that journey, let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, I will need your Spirit equipping me for preaching and teaching. And we will all need your Spirit equipping us for understanding and application, because that's the point of the hearing. So, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us 
in this never-to-be-repeated moment in history. Open our understanding. Help us as a community to hear what we need to hear as a community and help every individual to hear what they need to hear as an individual. And as always, we pray that for the honor of Christ and in his great name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice together today, may the Lord be with you. If you are participating in our 91-week journey through God's Word, you'll recall that recently our readings included the account of an ancient king of Judah by the name of Ahaz. And like many before him and after him, Ahaz knew the language of Scripture, but Ahaz did not know the God of Scripture. And so he placed his confidence in powerless substitutes, in idols, specifically the imaginary gods and idols of Judah's pagan neighbors. And predictably, his reign ended in his nation's ruin. Now today, I want to consider his son who replaced him on the throne of Judah. And fortunately for the nation, in his case, the apple landed far from the tree because he was everything his father was not. His life was characterized by devotion to God rather than addiction to idols. And because of that, he was able to lead his nation out of ruin and into a wonderful restoration. Now, the story of all this is recorded in the Old Testament book of 2 Chronicles 29. And it recounts how this restoration played out. And in so doing, it reveals some important facts about the struggle behind the struggle. And it begins with this simple statement in verse 2 of chapter 29. Hezekiah did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his ancestor David had done. Several years ago, I was engaging in the physically demanding sport of channel surfing. And as I was doing so, I came across a well-known pastor who was passionately articulating how our nation was changing for the worse. I quickly moved on. Not because I disagreed with him, I didn't but because I felt it was a classic case of preaching to the choir, articulating the obvious to an obviously sympathetic audience, the church. And preaching to the choir can be hazardous to both the preacher and the choir. And here's why. Because both can assume that their shared approval and affirmation of the message means that they've actually understood and applied that message. And history tells us it ain't necessarily so. The reality is we can applaud things that we don't understand and haven't applied. Things like love, justice, generosity, understanding, humility, forgiveness, prayer, service, and obedience to God. Happens all the time. That's why at one point in Israel's history, God said, you guys honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You amen concepts, but you don't apply them in your life. Now, when Hezekiah took the throne of Judah, the nation was a hot mess. It was spiritually compromised. 
It had been militarily weakened. It was economically impoverished. They had been deeply humiliated and conquered. And they were surrounded by powerful predatory enemies who weren't done with them yet. And there was no choir for Hezekiah to preach to. Because under his father, the sanctuary had literally been locked down and locked up. And what used to take place in the sanctuary, the worship of the true and living God, had been replaced by the worship of idols. It was a dark day in that nation's history, but as Scripture reminds us, God can birth restoration in the darkest of times. And on an individual level, let me remind you, God can birth restoration in the darkest of situations. You will never present God with a situation so dark that he can't begin to birth your restoration and the restoration of his liberating work in your life. Now sometimes God births restoration entirely on his own. But more often than not, he calls for the discerning cooperation of his people. And here's the good news. He doesn't need a whole lot of them. God's large-scale restorations often begin with a small group of believers. It's not how many of us there are. It's who is with us. And if God is with us, we have all the power we need. So God looks for people whose hearts are desperate for his honor and his kingdom and his glory and who care about the welfare of their community. People who understand the process. People who are willing to pay the price of being part of the solution. In Hezekiah's case, as he started the restoration of an entire nation, he literally was standing alone. But one person, one person, can accomplish much when they're aligned with the one who made the heavens and the earth. I heard a statement years ago I've always appreciated. One man with God is a power majority. And the whole world without God is a power minority. One person with God is a power majority. Hezekiah would prove that just as Dr. King would centuries later. Hezekiah clearly discerned the struggle behind the struggle. That's why his first priority wasn't political peacemaking. His first priority was the restoration of spiritual purity in the nation. He knew that before his nation could be restored from its compromised condition, his nation would have to restore God's compromised honor within the hearts of its citizens. He recognized that Judah's most powerful enemy wasn't Assyria who was waiting at the border. It was sin in the hearts of Judah's citizens. Hezekiah knew a nation's political welfare ultimately hinges on its spiritual welfare. Now, worldly thinking rejects that reality, rejects it out of hand, and that's why the world's efforts at instituting justice continually come up short. Now, I am aware that there are examples, current examples, of nations that appear to be doing fine even though their populace largely reject 
the notion of God. But I want to remind you that there are no ancient examples of nations that have flourished when their people rejected God. And here's why. A foundation of sin can't support a society of justice and peace, not for any length of time. Jesus reminded us of that when he said, if you build on sand, the issue isn't if your house is going to crumble, the issue is when your house is going to crumble. And the fact that there are nations whose people have largely rejected God and those nations appear to be doing fairly well, that reality does not prove the irrelevance of God. What it proves is the incredible patience, mercy, and grace of God who would rather restore than judge and patiently gives those peoples uh, opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. It reminds us that God doesn't settle his accounts every Friday, every month, every year, or even every century. But God will settle his accounts. And when he does, the wages of sin remain the same. They never change because God's moral laws of unavoidable cause and effect never change. The nation that appeared to be Judah's greatest threat, Assyria, was going to learn that the hard way. Because shortly after their leadership bragged to Judah, we're going to conquer you and take everything from you and you won't be able to stop us, God miraculously stopped them. They retreated with their tail between their legs and they paid the wages of sin with interest and penalties. Now Hezekiah's spiritual reform efforts began immediately and he announced what he was up to openly. He didn't attempt to hide his agenda. He didn't attempt to hide his motivation. And he didn't attempt to appease those who were spiritually corrupted in his nation. Instead, he challenged them to immediate action. And in doing so, he demonstrated that those who want to be used by God don't hide their intentions or their motivation. They show their colors. And I'm emphasizing that because living as we do in an age of what has been called outrage culture, canceling, political bullying, hatred masquerading as tolerance, moral relativism, and escalating hostility to God and His truth, in a culture like this, believers are tempted to sometimes conceal their identity, hide their message, hide their intentions, hide their passions, in the hopes of calling people to God at some later time. I want to remind you that rarely, rarely works. Because when the church compromises in an effort to gain a hearing, and in the hopes that then later on they'll be able to tell the rest of the story, those who don't want to yield to God only hear our compromise. They don't hear our unchanging convictions. Because they have a spiritual filtering system in place and when it detects the offense of God's gospel, it sends that message immediately to the spam folder. That's why the so-called progressive Christian movement in this nation that is making one 
compromise after another in the hopes of gaining the ears of the world is destined to fail. Because while culture applauds their efforts, and while they think the culture is applauding their progress, the reality is what the culture is applauding is their surrender. The culture sees them as coming over to the side of secularism and unbelief. And and you can't compromise the Word of God with somebody and then later say, oh, now you need to take it seriously. Doesn't work that way. Never has and it never will. Remember one of the things Jesus says, if you aren't ashamed of me, I won't be ashamed of you. And one thing by God's grace I will never be ashamed of is that I'm a follower of Jesus. And I'm never going to be ashamed of his liberating truth. And I'm never going to be ashamed of his gospel. Remember, the gospel has an unavoidable offense built into it. Scripture refers to the offense of the gospel. And it's not because God loves being offensive. It's because God has to offend what's wrong in us before he can bring us to what he wants to do to right us. You see, God's offers of grace and restoration all begin the same way, with calls for repentance. Repentance means if you were walking this way, following the world, you make a 180-degree turn and you begin to follow God. And you can't walk in both of those directions. Now, here's the problem with repentance. It offends human pride and human self-sufficiency. So, if we remove the offense of God's call to repentance, we effectively destroy the gospel, and what do we leave intact? We leave human pride intact. Problem with that? God's on record. He resists the proud. He only gives grace to the humble. So when you attempt to remove the offense of the gospel, you essentially remove the possibility of people's restoration. And you run the very real risk of eroding your own walk with God. Always remember this, devotion to God can't be kept secret. Because if your devotion doesn't destroy your secrecy, eventually your secrecy will destroy your devotion. Jesus didn't call anybody to be a secret disciple. There are no secret disciples. That's a contradiction in terms. Secret disciple, that's an impossibility. Now, knowing these things, Hezekiah launched his reform efforts immediately because he knew where there's no doubt of sin, there is no need of delay. When God says, this is wrong and I want to correct it in you, you don't say, okay, next month, or maybe next year. When God shows you something wrong in your life, the time to correct it is then. Years ago, I heard a statement that has always stuck with me. It's a sobering statement, and it's a brief one. It says, tomorrow is when fools obey God. Tomorrow is when fools obey God. Because tomorrows have a way of becoming tomorrows, 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 and then suddenly the opportunity is gone. Well, Hezekiah knew that his dad hadn't been the only problem in Judah. He had had a lot of very willing accomplices. 
the presiding religious leaders and priests. And they hadn't challenged all of that shutting down of the temple and building of idols because they didn't want to risk their cushy salaries and their social standing. And Hezekiah knew that had to change because God has predictable patterns. He uses the priests in a nation to set the spiritual tone for the nation. And if the hearts of the priests in Judah were corrupt, there would be no restoration among the people. So Hezekiah confronted those corrupted priests about what he called filth in the holy place. It was a fitting description for their complicity in idolatry. And frankly, it's a fitting description of sin that we embrace in our own hearts. That's filth in the holy place. Because the holy God dwells in you. That makes your body and your soul a holy place. And there is no rationale for having filth in the holy place. So Hezekiah called them to repentance, knowing there'd be no restoration without it. The nation and the priests needed God's purifying fire. The purifying fire of God's Holy Spirit. But here's another biblical principle. God's purifying fire falls on sacrifice. It does not fall on an empty altar. God can only purify what we present to him. Only when I acknowledge my sin and say, Lord, I'm laying this down, only then can God purify that area of my life. God doesn't send fire on empty altars. Now, some things never change. God's restoration still has to begin with his priests. And I want to remind you, the tasks of priests were twofold. They were to represent God to the people, and they were to represent the people to God. Now, the New Testament makes it very clear, if you are a follower of Jesus and have experienced the new birth, you are a part of God's current new covenant priesthood. I'm speaking today to a room full of God's priests. We are his royal priesthood. We are a nation of priests. That's how God describes us. Why? Because we're to represent God to people through evangelism and service. And we represent people to God, how? Through our prayers on their behalf. Every one of us is called to carry out the work of a priest. So if we want God to purify our nation, we must first allow God to purify his priesthood in the nation, and that's us. Scripture testifies restoration begins in a renewed conviction of sin. Where? Within God's people. Within God's people. It begins in the hearts who believe there is such a thing as sin. Devotion to God always births a sharp awareness of sin. Let me say that again because you don't hear that a lot anymore, and that's a tragic omission. Devotion to God births an acute and heightened awareness of sin. You want an example? Hezekiah's contemporary was a prophet by the name of Isaiah. 
And you remember, Isaiah was privileged to have a vision in which he saw the throne room of the universe and the glory of God, and he heard the creatures of heaven singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And when Isaiah had a more accurate glimpse of God, he didn't rejoice in his new heightened sense of self-worth. Hallelujah, I am somebody. No, he repented because of his heightened awareness of his own sin and the sins of his people. And his response to being drawn closer to God was to say, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Lord, we need cleansed. We have people suggesting the closer you get to God, you'll you'll just have heightened sense of self-worth, you will, and a heightened sense of, of confidence, you should, and a heightened sense of your identity, you should. But what they omit is that you will also have a heightened sense of your own sin, which is a barrier to all those things. God will heighten your awareness of sin so that you can deal with it, put it on the altar, and He can draw you closer to those things. And that's why downplaying sin, which is very much in fashion, in order to attract people to Jesus does not indicate spiritual progress. It indicates a compromised priesthood that has lost sight of God. The more the modern church says, oh, we don't talk about sin, the more it indicts itself as losing its vision of the holiness of God. God restores where God is taken seriously. Where God is taken seriously, sin is taken seriously because sin is first and foremost against God. That's why David said, against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. The unbelieving in our culture will not take sin seriously until the church takes sin seriously. Every revival testifies to that reality. So Hezekiah's story reminds us before God can do what only he can do in a nation, his people in that nation must do what only they can do. They have to recognize the struggle and repent of their complicity in the idolatries and the sins. It is easy, incredibly easy, to shout amen when the pastor is talking about evil in our culture. It is quite another thing to shout amen when the topic is the evil in us. But the filth in the holy place has to be put on the altar before our restoration can begin. And until our restoration begins, the restoration of the nation doesn't have a snowball's chance. There are tears to be shed, confessions to be made, idols to be abandoned, addictions to be renounced, prejudices to be acknowledged, wrongs to be righted, secrets to be revealed, relationships to be repaired. And if we aren't open to those things, we won't be able to open the way to justice for our culture. I was reading this past week the words of a Christian writer, Richard Beck. 
And I want to just paraphrase what he said because it describes the alternative to what Hezekiah did. And sadly, in many places, you'll recognize we're stuck in the alternative. He said, when we allow our concept of the struggle for justice to be reduced to a mere human political struggle, then we will demonize the bad guys and turn our political opponents into monsters. Then our discourse will become hostile and judgmental and violent. And spiritual virtues and weapons like confession, self-control, repentance, humility, forgiveness, peacemaking, mercy, and love will all go missing. And the struggle for justice will be reduced to a bloody, ugly, winner-takes-all cage match. And honey, I'd suggest that's where we are. That's where we are. If you doubt that, go home and get on any social media platform and read what people are saying in the arena of seeking justice in our nation. It's adversarial, hateful, judgmental, sweeping condemnations. Them, no them, no them, no them. Why? Fighting the wrong battle, the wrong way, ignorant of the struggle, behind the struggle, that will never be won by arrogance, humility, and hate, but can only be won when God's people put their sins on the altar so He can restore them, so they can be salt, so they can be light in a culture that drastically needs both. And the way to that is not compromising biblical truth. A loving God would much rather restore than judge. He's on record. He's looking for people who share that passion. So in closing, let me suggest a question. It's not designed to be an invitation to short-lived guilt. Too often the church specializes in that. Instead, I mean it as an invitation to some honest, sobering, soul-searching and prayer. Here's the question. If the spiritual restoration necessary for increased justice in this nation depended entirely upon my devotion to God, my prayers, my faith, my obedience, would this nation be moving towards restoration? Now, thankfully, restoration doesn't depend entirely upon any one of us. But it's also true that it won't happen if we act like it depends on somebody else. So I'd like to suggest in closing that ultimately the struggle behind the struggle for greater justice in our society isn't political. It's the struggle for God's people to submit their hearts entirely to Him. Because when God's people do that, they become an irresistible force of restoration within a nation. They shout the glories of Christ rather than the hatred of social media. And then things begin to change. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we want to be a part of the solution. But that only happens when we recognize the nature of the problem. Today I've attempted to remind your people that this is inherently a spiritual problem. And only spiritual weapons in the hands of spiritual people will bring progress. So Father, help us to know the struggle behind the struggle. 
Help us to win the struggle to submit our own hearts to you and then raise up a purified priesthood of Jesus' followers who will change the moral compass of our nation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank <laughs> you.